All right, thank you, Greg and Sharon. Thank you for coming this morning. Good to see you. We're continuing our series this morning on uh, <clears throat> God's sovereignty in the home and specifically in the life of Jacob. So if you'll take God's word and find Genesis chapter 27, Genesis chapter 27. <clears throat> They gave me all kinds of time this morning, so I guess you all want your money's worth, right? What are the signs of a dysfunctional home? Just in some research this week, just a few signs that we uh, observe. First of all, some homes struggle because of absence. Perhaps the father is absent from the home or the mother. Um, This can be a sign of dysfunction. A second may be <clears throat> some type of addiction. Addiction can lead to so many different unhealthy relationships among family members. It could be alcohol, it could be drugs, it could be some other type of addiction. Also, avoidance. Did you know that families that struggle to deal with issues in their home is a sign of dysfunction. Let's say you have a troubled child, you have problems in your marriage, you have some issue, and we feel like that the best thing to do is just not even talk about it. That's actually a sign of dysfunction, trying to avoid something. Also, abuse or neglect can be a sign of dysfunction in a home. Showing love only when it's a conditional or if someone only does something to please you and then you show love, but do not love someone because of who they are, that can be a sign. Lack of boundaries in a home, just allowing whatever to run rampant in whatever direction. Lack of intimacy, if you do not see a father or a mother or children, thank you Andrew, or parents showing affection toward their children, that can also be a sign of dysfunction. And then finally, a home that has poor communication. In other words, you have a mom and a dad, perhaps, that do not sit down and talk about life. They do not talk about their day. They do not talk about their problems or their family or what they're going through. All of these can lead to signs of dysfunction and ultimately some type of a split in a home. And this is exactly what we're going to look at this morning, but I want you to know something. Even though we see dysfunction in a home, I want you to leave here today with hope because God can work in the midst of a dysfunctional home. Okay, are you with me this morning? This is a long chapter, and I'm going to begin to put the plow in the ground, and we're going to take off, okay? So I've broken this down into four sections that we're going to read through. We're going to read through, first of all, Isaac, the older father, You know, Isaac at this point, you know, he lived to be 180 years old, okay? So remember, we're in the early part of the book of Genesis. Just a few years prior to Isaac, Methuselah lived to be how old? Oldest man mentioned in the Bible. How old was he? 969. And you have this almost living for a millennium, almost a thousand years. Well, after the flood, geologists and other people believe that Life what did not last as long due to the situation that happened. God's judgment, the atmosphere happened, sickness and other things. So life went down, but still 180 years old. Now that would be like somebody being in their 90s right now would only be 45. 
So Monroe, you'd be 45. Jim Edmondson, you'd be about 45 this morning. Wouldn't that be nice? So you've got to put this in perspective. So when you read this narrative, we're coming to Isaac. He's about 45 years old, and he acts like he's dying. Y'all ever met anybody like that? Uh, my grandfather, I won't mention on which side, but I can remember being a kid. When he was in his 40s, he acted like he was 140. But he lived to be almost 90. So this is the picture I want you to see of Isaac. Now, he has grown older. He is having some issues with his eyes and other reasons. But Isaac is going to hear fight against God's will that he knew from the very womb that the younger son would be over the eldest son. We talked last week that Isaac had a favorite. Rebecca had a favorite. They played favoritism in their home. Isaac loved Esau. Jacob was loved by his mother, Rebecca. And so you have this war against each other right from the beginning because of parents showing favoritism to their children. Now, by the way, if you ever want your child to hate their sibling, just show favoritism toward one and watch the natural hatred between their lives. It causes bitterness, anger, it causes insecurity, all kinds of trouble, turmoil, and problems when parents show favoritism to one child versus another. That's what happens. So Isaac is going to fight against God's will for his children. Then you're going to see Rebecca, the shrewd wife, work against her own husband in her home, and she's going to counter Isaac's blessing to the eldest. And then you're going to see her hook up with Jacob as they both work together, even against Jacob's own wishes, to deceive their own father into receiving the blessing. And then you're going to see the final result of the eldest brother, the the oldest son, as he begins to mourn and to cry and to weep because he has lost his blessing. Okay? So let's just plow in right here in the first few verses as we read down. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. And he said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow. Go out to the field and hunt game for me. And prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, Rebecca, obviously, hears this conversation. And now what does she do? She was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebecca said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, saying, Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Now, anybody reading Genesis should circle that phrase, obey my voice. Does that remind you of anything? This goes back, if you want to go back all the way to Genesis in the garden, to Adam obeying the voice of Eve, and then you have Abraham obeying the voice of Sarah, and then there's problems. But I'm just showing you that little clue there. Obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats 
so that I may prepare them for delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I'm a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him, and bring a curse upon myself, and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be upon me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. So he went and he took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house. So she went to the dirty clothes basket, okay? Y'all following? She went to the dirty clothes basket, she picked out his clothes that were in her house, and she put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goat she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. Now we're going to watch Mr. Heel Grabber, Mr. Deceiver, go in, in the the lawyer's office, I'm going to put this in modern day terms, he's going to go in the in the lawyer's office and slide the wheel up under his father who can't see and tell him, Dad, I just need you to sign here. Endorse this check. Okay? I, I, need, a, I need your signature. This is kind of the deception that's going on here. So Jacob now, he's kind of worried because he's not sure if he's going to get caught. So he went into his father and said, My father, he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob says to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Don't you love it when we blame things on God? Especially our deception. God must have just blessed Because the Lord your God granted me success, then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So we kind of get the idea here that Jacob's detecting something a little fishy. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. And he said, are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Now just remember, there's two lies that he's told his father. We're going to get to a third one. And then when we get to the story of Jacob and his own children, guess what's going to happen? He's going to be lied to three times. He's going to be deceived. And he's going to spend years trying to get over his own deception. Then he said, Bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate it and he brought him wine and he drank. And then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, Now you've got to get the picture. Rebecca here has tied hairy garments on his hands, hairy garments on his neck, and she's 
laid over him all of Esau's dirty old sweaty clothes that Isaac loved to smell. And so Isaac now says, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Now, in the modern day, what this would be like, having this father's bestowal of a blessing upon a son, is exactly like going into a legal office of a lawyer, sitting down where he has drawn up his last will and testament, and executing the will before death. In other words, they are now putting everything over into this child's name. So Jacob now has the blessing of the, of the father, He gets two-thirds of the inheritance. He also has the responsibility of taking care of his parents. So all of this is bestowed over on him. So it's a very serious matter. And so he gives this great blessing to Jacob. And now Esau, the older brother, who should have cared about his own responsibility, his birthright, who should have cared about the blessing of his father, is now going to come in, which is remarkable, because this happened in a matter of hours. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father, and he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently. I don't want you to miss this. You know, he starts shaking. And he said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me, father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named deceiver? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him Lord over you and all his brothers. I have given him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? What's done is done, in other words. Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice, and he wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall shall your dwelling be, 
and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now what I want to talk to you about this morning, and I went through that rather quickly, I want to talk to you about some lessons that you and I can learn from this home. Now, if you were looking at this story, and if I were teaching this to you in a theological class, or if I was teaching the book of Genesis, per se, on a, another level, what I would be emphasizing over and over again is, is God had a direct will that he wanted to work in order to bring Jesus into the world. And one of the ways was he picked an unlikely man named Abram, and Abram was childless. He let him get to a point to where he could have no children. He gave him a son, Isaac, after Abraham had all kinds of attempts to bring in the heir. And God chose the younger. And then he moves to this man, Isaac, and he decides to have two children. One, the older, would serve the younger. And through the younger, twelve sons would come. And God was showing his elective purpose of how he was going to bring Jesus in the world. And he was also showing that he doesn't work the way that we think he should work. But God is always faithful. And what God does through this whole story, which is what we're driving at here, is he takes an unfaithful, trickster, a deceiver, a rascal, the kind of brother you really wouldn't want to be your brother, And he takes that man and he breaks him and he molds him and he makes him into actually somebody that he can use. So for every parent, every grandparent, and every wife and husband, it gives us hope to know that God is big enough to break the most tricky rascal you've ever seen in your life if he chooses to do that. You and I may think that people are so far that nobody could ever rescue them. They've gone beyond hope. Nobody could ever intervene in their life. I've got news for you. You have way too small of a view of God and way too big of a view of a sinner. Because believe me, folks, God can break people if he wants to. And this is exactly what we're going to learn. He's going to break Jacob. And he's actually going to give Jacob a Ph.D. in life. That what goes around comes around. And if you think that you can trick God and you can get away with it, God will eventually bring the chickens home to roost. And you will see that God wins. However, what we're going to do for practical purposes here, because we all have families, we all have life, we're going to evaluate this story and look at it. And we're going to see some lessons that you and I can learn about parenting and life and family And we're going to ask ourselves the question, what can we learn from this and how can we be better Christian parents, grandparents, brothers and sisters, siblings? How can we be better at this and so bring glory to God? Okay, so are you ready? The first lesson is simply this. Every home has problems because every family has sinners. And you and I should expect that in our family and in our home We should expect that from our children and grandchildren and other people in our family because, folks, let's just get down to the bottom. This is just who we are. You and I are sinners who produce sinners. So why are we shocked when our children sin? When they hide things from us, when they lie, when they do things they shouldn't, 
when they act like such model children in front of mother and father, but get around their friends and their mouths sound like the mouths of a gangster. Now young people, let me, let me share something with you that you better listen to me about if you don't hear anything else I say this morning. You have something in your possession called social media that we didn't have. The only recording device I had in my day was a cassette recorder that you had to push play and record at the same time and you could speak into that little microphone and it would record your voice. You have social media today. You better listen to me. You better be careful about what you put on social media. It will come back and haunt you one day. One of my boys showed me something that another young man, nobody in this church, so please, please, don't be wondering if it was you. It wasn't. I'd tell you if it was. I wouldn't stand up here and preach about you and not come to you first and say something. But they took an image, of a video. They didn't take it. Somebody posted it online of this young man. And when I heard his voice, my heart sunk. Because I know the young man, but the way he was talking and what he was saying, I thought to myself, if his mother or father saw that, I think his mother would get sick at her stomach. And as I began to think, you know, should something like this be shared? Because if this person ever goes to go anywhere in life, let me tell you something, there's going to be problems if that video goes viral. Because that could actually ruin a career. Now, listen to me. One stupid 30-second video saying something that you should not say could ruin your career. And then I began to think about that, and I thought, you know, should, should I really be alarmed? Uh, everyone is a sinner. Everyone does dumb. But wisdom would say, make sure that you know what you're doing before you do it. Now, I just toss that out there for your input, and you just uh, ponder on be very cautious about what you allowed people to record of you and post online and be very careful about what you post. It'll come back and haunt you. Now, parents, we should not be alarmed because our children got their sin nature from who? That's right, from us. But at the same time, we have to guide our children. Do you know, we learned that this week, that January is known as Divorce Month. Divorce Care, it puts out this letter to its leaders and so forth. So January is known as Divorce Month, and the reason is because parents make it a goal to go through the holidays of Christmas and New Year, Thanksgiving, get after those holidays, and then they decide to divorce. So this is the greatest divorce month uh, out of the 12 months because they're just enduring. This home that Isaac and Jacob uh, Esau and Jacob were raised in, is filled with all kinds of problems. I've listed a few. They have barrenness. They have favoritism. They have conflict with daughter-in-laws. You can look at chapter 26, verse 34 and 35, where Rebekah tells Isaac, Esau has married the wildest women, these Canaanite women, and I don't even want to live because of my daughter-in-laws. Now, by the way, have you ever had conflict in your home between a between a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law? Or between a son-in-law and a mother-in-law? I mean, if you have in-laws, you're going to have outlaws. 
That's just how life works. And as my grandfather said, in great wisdom, there's no home big enough for two families under one roof. There's a lot of wisdom in that. He was an old coal miner, never made it past the seventh grade. But he, he knew that when you put two families under one roof that are two independent families, you're going to have conflict and problems. But they had them here. They had conflict, deception, manipulation, hatred between siblings and brothers, favoritism in parents, caretaking responsibilities. Apparently Isaac was at an age and in a position to where somebody had to take care of him. You ever had an older person you had to take care of that was so grouchy and so strong-willed that they would not allow you to do for them what you know needed to be done? And by the way, when you get older, I've been told that it's very hard to give up your independence. One of the hardest things to do is to take a driver's license away from someone who doesn't need to be driving. Because in many ways, a driver's license is like one of our last one of our last options of independence. So be cautious when you do this, but at the same time, we have to speak wisdom in the way that you don't want to go out and kill someone because you, know, you don't want to give up driving or give up something that you should. This was going on in the home. You know, can't you hear Rebecca? Isaac, you don't need to be riding on that chariot. Uh, get off that donkey. It's going too fast. But anyway, there, there were problems here. And then they also had problems with their children. You know, as parents get older, we, we start seeing our children. We know our children. And now you have this concept of what's going on in your son's life, and you begin to see your children develop. And you see character qualities and traits in them, whether they're strong or deficient, whether they tell the truth or whether they lie, whether they you know, are responsible with money and resources or whether they're just careless and go out and spend. You know, it's all on mom and dad's dime. I could care less, leave the doors open in the house, ever lighten the house on, stomp mud off all over the place, never clean up after yourself, stack dishes up like you know, Mother Hubbard's cupboard and... Don't take care of anything. Never say thank you. Never want to talk to their parents about anything. I mean, you know, we begin to see traits in our children and it becomes bothersome to us. And then when you try to talk to your child about their spending habit or maybe something that you see it's going to bring, I know, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. I know, it's my life. Then mom and dad have to really determine the wise thing to do with this child. How do you handle that? I mean, when you have a wild stallion running in your home, what do you do? The only way to break a stallion is to do what to it? I'll leave that for the vet. Chris, you can, you can explain what you do with that. Okay, anyway. But every, every family has careless and carefree character qualities that we see in our children. We saw a fleshly and a careless attitude in Esau. He did not care about his family priorities. I mean, he did not want to take care of his mom and dad. Because he had missed breakfast and came home late for lunch one day, he acted like he was starving to death. And unless he got his bowl of soup... You know, he was going to just die, like missing lunch would kill him. So he was so careless about that, that when Jacob presented the fact that he wanted to be the one that had his mom and dad's inheritance and also be the one to take care of them, 
Esau was like, I could really care less. All I want is my bowl of soup. And then when it came time for him to get the blessing, to be the one to take care, then all he wanted was the blessing. He did not want the responsibility. And how many times have you seen kids like this? They don't want to take care of their mom and dad. You know what they want? They want the inheritance. And if there's no inheritance or payment for them, then they don't want anything to do. Now, by the way, before I was actually in full-time pastorate, God, in his wisdom, allowed me to work for an attorney in Winston-Salem. This particular attorney was an estate attorney, and he wanted me to be the carrier in several occasions I had. I could deliver these. I could also sit in the meetings when they distributed and shared the will with families. Now, folks, if you want to hear something fascinating... You should watch a family come together when a will is read and it doesn't go the way that they think it went. In other words, when some children would ignore their parents their whole life and their mother and father saw this, and when it came time to distribute the will, the mother and the father did what Proverbs said, you know, that a son who ignores their mother and father, the slave will be the one who inherits. You should watch a room full of children with a deceased mother and father when the will is read and the money from the will is given to someone else and not even the children because they could have cared less about their mother and father. And you're talking about a shock factor. It's hard to sit there and go. And the moaning and the cussing and the... I mean, just... But here's my point. Every family has problems. And we have to learn to deal with it. Esau was this kind, careless, did not care. He would go out and have relationships with women that absolutely turned him away from ever having the blessing of the line that he could bring the Messiah. Marrying Canaanite women, so I mean, we could just go on down the list. All right, have y'all had enough of that? All right, good. What is my point? Every family has its problems, so expect them. But when they arise, what should we do? We should deal with them. I mean, we should, we should deal with them. When we see rebellion in our children, if they're of the age where we can still... We should, we should deal with it. If they're older, we should try to share wisdom with them. We should give proper boundaries. And this goes throughout all of our relationship. And if we fail to deal with problems, uh, then we're failing to deal with reality. But every home has them, okay? So every home has some dysfunction. Lesson number two... Parents should strive for God's will in our children's life, not our own. They should strive for God's will, not our own. Now, as parents, one of our responsibilities is to do what? To help direct our children in a path in which we feel like would be well-suited for them, which they should go, but ultimately that decision is up with our children. One of the worst things to watch in life is a parent who will not let his child grow. They don't let them experience any kind of pain. They don't let them experience the consequences of bad choices, whether it be financial or other areas. And they always try to manipulate every area of their life, and they never let them grow up. And the root issue comes back, you know, in many ways when you dig and plunder, it comes back to a 
sense of control and the need to have control over everything and also finding your identity in your child. And you try to manipulate and control your child so much to the point that you will fight against God's will for them to have your own. And that is exactly what happened in this home with Isaac and Rebecca. He knew God told Rebecca before these two children were born what God's elective order was going to be and Isaac fought against it. Ephesians chapter 6 says, Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. And parents, refrain from provoking your children. That is the concept of a loving, happy, functioning home. And Isaac knew that the younger would serve the older, but he fought against it. Rebecca knew that God would ultimately decide that the younger would eventually serve, but she couldn't help it. She had to help God. So what did Rebecca do? She decided to lie, cheat, and deceive her husband for her child's sake. Now, folks, when you have this stuff going on between mom and dad, you know, not on the same page, mom trying to manipulate dad to get this way for the child, not telling dad all the truth, you know, giving half-truths. I mean, you're talking about problems. That is ultimately problems. And by the way, anytime parents, this is free, by the way, anytime that parents go against each other for a child, you are doing nobody any favorites. You're certainly driving a wedge between you and your wife, or you and your husband, and you're also showing your own children that it's okay for mom and dad to have division over you getting your way. You know, a child will be much better off saying, Mom and dad, listen, I'll just have it this way because I don't want to see you two divided and argue over that. I'd rather see mom and dad get along than fight over me getting my way. And by the way, we don't normally see children do that, do we? But we do see parents arguing, manipulating, working against each other, saying that they disagree in front of their children. I mean, but are you talking about giving little deceptive children some ground to get their claws in? When they see mom and dad going against each other, you better watch out, brother, because they're going to ride that horse as far as they can. Stop that quickly. You know, you often wonder if Rebecca would have went to Isaac. Did they ever have this conversation? She says, you know, we know what God told us from the very beginning. So this is not saying that we can't, you know, have discussion and we can't do things with our children. But you know God's purpose and will. Why aren't we following what God wants to do? And what did Isaac say? Hush, woman, I know better. I know what I'm doing. You be quiet. Submit. I don't know what he said. I'm just, I'm making that up. But anyway, this is the result of it. And you know, you and I may not know the exact details of every little event that God wants for our children. We, we, we really do not have this concept exactly like Rebecca had. But we do know that God wants our children to love Him and follow Him despite the cost. And what do you do when your child comes to you and says, I'm in college... And my professor says that if I write this paper, 
with this Christian value, I'm going to fail that class. What are you going to tell your child? Now, I'm going to tell you what most would be tempted to say. Now, honey, leave your Christianity at church. You're in a school and your job is to get your degree. You write whatever that professor wants you to write and you pass that class. And then when you get out, you can do your Christian thing. I hope that's not you. But I've heard parents say that. Go against your conviction, go against whatever, and you do what the teacher in that university wants you to do. Well, your pastor would tell you exactly opposite. You write your conviction, and if it costs you a class, so be it. God doesn't want you to pass that class anyway. You take a stand for Jesus, because I want to assure you of something. You will never be ashamed of that in eternity. It may cost you here, but I promise you, you will be paid there. So don't you ever compromise. Okay, that's just your pastor's advice. But I don't know what your parents are telling but here's the issue. We know that God wants our children to come to know Him as Savior and stand for Him with moral conviction. And I want you to know something, folks. That's going to cost your children and grandchildren in this culture. And you and I are going to have to dig our heels in and we're going to have to love what God wants for our kids more than we, what we want for them. We want peace. We want a good job. We want good benefits. We want them to have all this junk that's going to do nothing but distract them from God. Maybe God wants them to be a warrior for Him. And maybe as parents and grandparents, we need to stop and pray, Lord, help me not try to intervene and save them all the time. Maybe I should just step back and watch you work and pray for them and encourage them and stand with them. But nevertheless, Isaac was willing to ignore God's word and the desires of his wife and his elect son in order to bless his immoral, freebooting son. Isaac thus tossed a relational torch into the tents of his family, and because of his sin, no one would do well, neither he nor Rebekah nor Isaac nor Esau, because there are no heroes in this story, Kent Hughes says, only sinners, and Isaac as the father was the chief. Mm. Dad, you and I will be responsible for our home. We will. And God will hold us accountable for how we allow our home to be operated or ignored. If we do not take the initiative in our home, that doesn't mean be the dictator. That means the initiative by being the servant leader in our home, creating an environment of health and function, we will be held accountable for that. And you, if you're asking yourself right now, well, how in the world do I become a good father? And how do I? Then Ray Meese, next Friday and Saturday, is having a men's conference that deals with this very same issue. How do you face the giant of leading your home? How do you face the giant of dealing with children and other issues in our home that are falling to pieces? That'll help. Lesson number three. Parents should be united, not divided when dealing with their children. I think I've already pounded on this one, but this is so true. 
So here is a little practical piece of advice. You can take it or leave it. You know, there will be times when we hear and see things in our children. We feel like, you know, maybe the whole picture is not seen by one of the persons, or maybe they're being a little too harsh. If that's the case, I I don't think you should just sit there and go, well, okay, I'll just let it go. No, you should very kindly and politely ask to talk to the other in private, the husband or the wife, and express your concern in a loving way. Say, I, I wouldn't dare disagree with you in front of our children. But I, I do want to share this. I, I want us to think through this and talk about it beforehand so that we can figure out what is the right thing to do here. And then as you sit down and you talk through this issue with your wife or your husband, and perhaps you come to some kind of resolution, and perhaps one side of the family was wrong, then mom and dad, hear me carefully. One of the greatest things about unity in your home is the willingness for one party to apologize to another. Now, I want to, men, this is, this is not a point, but it is the point right now. One of the strengths to find out whether or not you're a godly man, if you want to know whether you're a mature godly man, one of the ways to know that is how quick and how willing you are to admit you're wrong, to say you're sorry, and to ask for forgiveness. You know, that is a man. A man is not somebody who can punch a hole through a wall, kick a door, cuss a a line that would make a sailor blush. That's not a man. That's That's a beast. A man is somebody who knows he's wrong, he's willing to admit he's wrong, and he's willing to ask for forgiveness and try to restore and make things right. And one of the reasons that parents do not want to be united on issues, they want to dig their heels in and be right, is because they won't admit that perhaps they're wrong. In marriage counseling, I'm sure Brian could share the same thing with me and other counselors here, you know when a husband and a wife come in and they go to talk to you, and the first thing you hear out of one of their mouths is, well, I'm going to tell you what the problem is. He is. Because he, 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 he. And then when you talk to him, he's like, I'm going to tell you what the problem is. She is. Because she, 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 she. There is, there, let me tell you something. You know right then as a counselor, you begin praying silently, oh God, you are going to have to intervene. Because if not, there's no hope. But when somebody comes in and they say, well, now listen. I am the one at fault here. You know, I, I will take the brunt of the responsibility because, and then you listen to their reason, it's so minor. Then you begin to realize there's hope in this marriage. But my point is simply this. One of the best things that we could ever do for our children or grandchildren is for us as parents to be united in our decision, not divided when we deal with our children. Okay, so I think you've got that point. I'll, I'll move on. Number four. Lesson number four. God's blessing is always, always more important than man's approval. Whether it's parents, peers, 
or public opinion. Now, what do I mean by that? Isaac wanted Esau to be blessed above Jacob because he was his favorite child. Isaac wanted the qualities of Esau in his own life, but it had already passed. He was trying to live his life through his older son. And so he wanted to see that son be blessed. But on the flip side, Rebekah wanted Jacob's blessing above Esau's so bad that she was willing to lie and deceive her own husband. Lose her oldest son and not see Jacob the rest of her life. Now, let me tell you what happened. We're going to talk about this next week. Do you realize this act of trickery in Rebekah's life toward Isaac? You see, Jacob had to leave. Because if you read on down a little bit later, Esau said, well, I'll tell you what. The only comfort I have in losing my blessing is killing my brother. And as soon as my dad dies, I'm going to nail him to the wall. You know, Rebecca heard that. She, and by the way, she caused <clears throat> that conflict. <clears throat> Scholars tell us that she never saw Jacob again alive. <clears throat> he left, went to her home country. She never saw him again. Now, fortunately, we're going to hear the story of how the brothers were eventually reunited. But Esau was ready to kill him. And by the way, if you've ever seen that in your home, it's a treacherous thing, isn't it? So what is the point? God's blessing is more important than man's approval. Jacob wanted the birthright and the blessing but he didn't want to wait God's way. But Esau wanted the blessing, but not the responsibility. He wanted the inheritance, but he didn't want to take care of his family. But here's the bottom line. God's purposes will always and eventually work out. Be willing to step back and let things not go our way and let God work. And God will eventually have his way. You know, one of the encouraging things for a believer. Are you all hearing me? We don't have to see everything go our way in this life. You see, we have a very limited perspective. We think that if God doesn't change things in our lifetime so that we can see it, it'll never be made right. Oh, don't ever fool yourself. You say, well, such and such would never apologize and be restored to such and such. Uh, oh, they will. They will. You know, for the believers, there's an event called the, the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. The Bema. You know, the Bema seat was twofold. One was it was a place where relationships and decisions were made, judicial decisions. And on the other side, it was used as a reward platform. Now, I want you to keep those two things in mind. One is, things will be made right, and the other side, there will be rewards. So you have to have both of them together. You know, if a believing husband runs off on his wife to marry some young girl and goes and lives in the Caribbean the rest of his life till he's 95 years old, while she stays home taking care of the kids, scratching by, 
and he's truly a believer, you honestly think God's going to let him get by with that? You honestly think that at the judgment seat of Jesus Christ, Jesus is just going to say, oh, bless our, you're so blessed, thank you, I'm glad you're a believer. Go on into eternity. <laughs> oh, no. At the judgment seat, things will be made right. Paul goes on to say that there will be some tears there. We will receive what we've done in the body, whether good or evil. He will bring all that up. So, so the bottom line is, sometimes we have to wait for God's blessing, don't we? Because we may not see it in this life. The fifth lesson is, power, possession, and prosperity do not bring eternal satisfaction. I mean, what did Esau think? If I could only get that birthright and that blessing, I'll be happy. What did Jacob think? If I could only get this, I'll be happy. What was the result of both? Esau was weeping and Jacob had to leave home and learn a hard lesson. What is our lesson in life, folks? Let me tell you, you see this. The older you get, the more you see this. Possession, power, and prosperity does not bring satisfaction to your life. Karen and I were watching the titans that built America. Mr. Rockefeller, one of the richest men in the world. You know, Rockefeller, at a young man, could have just quit. And somebody asked him, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money is enough money? You all remember his answer? Just one more dollar millions and millions and would have been billions today. He couldn't get enough. That didn't satisfy him. Prosperity. What about power? I mean, if I could just be promoted to this position, I would be so happy and life would be so wonderful. <clears throat> Please don't fool yourself. It's lonely at the top of the ladder. Corporate executives will tell you and so will other business people. It's lonely there. It looks like the coveted place to be until you're the one sitting in that position and having to make those decisions so that's probably not going to bring ultimate satisfaction so all of these things that we think are going to bring fullness of joy don't but David wrote in Psalm chapter 16 verse 10 he says in your presence there is fullness of joy you won't leave my soul in the grave, you will take it to you. And in your presence is fullness of joy. You know, I would encourage you to meditate on that verse. That is such a wonderful... Matter of fact, just turn there real quick. I know I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to. Psalm chapter 16. You'll recognize this. And I'll let you read it sometime, but I'm just going to... I'm going to start reading in verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to the grave or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You want to know where ultimate satisfaction and joy come in life? Get ready. Only 
in the presence of God. You and I will not be fulfilled in our life until we see His presence. So if you search for it here, you're going to search for it in vain. You're not going to find it. Sixth, always remember this. Proverbs says that a good name is more important than great riches. Deceit, deception, all of those perils that we do in life, trying to claw and claw to get ahead, the bottom line is, don't do that. Because Proverbs says it's better to have a good name than great riches. They will fade away. It also advises that we have to be wise. Deception always catches us. Righteousness will eventually win out. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, deceitful people, sometimes it takes a while, but eventually their fruit will be made known. And then finally, and this is the one I want to just park for just a moment, God is faithful to His promise even when His people are not faithful to Him. I want you to think about this for a minute. God's purpose was to carry his line through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This was God's choosing. This was his his elective line to bring the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel, and he was going to do it through Jacob, and that was God's way, and we don't know exactly why, but God said he was going to do it, and he did it. And Jacob deceived and tricked and lied and did everything he could and his mother did it and everything happened against him. But in the end, all the fighting, God was faithful. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 and following reads this. This saying you can put down in the book as true and is going to happen. That's what trustworthy means. If we have died with him, we will also... Live with Him. If we endure, that means suffer, by the way, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. If we are faithless, He remains what? Now hold on a minute. Let's read this again. This saying is trustworthy. If we've died with Him, we will live with Him. If we endure, if we suffer, we'll also reign. If we deny Him, He will deny us. If we are faithless, what would we expect that to say? That He would be faithless. But Paul says, if we're faithless, He will be faithful. Listen to what one man wrote in summary of this section. This story is real life. Everyone in the story sinned. No one looked good. Not Isaac, not Rebekah, not Jacob, not Esau. The patriarch Isaac fought against God's word. The matriarch Rebekah, through her favorite son, attempted to manipulate life so as to ensure that God's promise would actually happen in her time. She and Jacob thought that God needed help, even if the help was dishonest and self-serving. Esau, the patriarch's favorite son, disregarded God's word. Indeed, he despised the promised. 
and in the end, everyone in the family lost. Rebecca was forced to send her pet son off to Mesopotamia, away from her father's house, in a destitute condition. Jacob was gone for 20 years, and it appears that his mother never saw him again. Jacob's exile was just payment for his deceiving Esau as he experienced the extended miseries of conflict and exploitation at the hands of his uncle Laban. Truly, blind old Isaac had tossed a torch into his family's tents by fighting against God's word. And Esau, who despised his birthright, lost everything and ended up despising his family. But in and above this is something of immense beauty and grandeur. The invincible determination of God to keep his word despite the prevailing unbelief and unfaithfulness of his people. God fulfilled his word despite Isaac's opposition, Rebekah and Jacob's manipulation, and Esau's indifference. Everyone in the family sought the blessing of God without bending one knee to God at any time. This little family was fraught with ambition, jealousy, envy, lying, deceit, coveting, malice, manipulation, stubbornness, and stupidity. Fellow believers, amidst our sins and stupidities, the invincible determination of God is set to bring us to completion, even when we resist it. This truth was given memorable voice in Paul's advice to Timothy in the surprising fourth line of this remarkable, trustworthy statement. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. The first two lines express assurance. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign. The third line warns if we deny him, he will also deny us. So with the two lines of assurance and a line of warning ringing in our ears, we come to the fourth line. If we are faithless, dot, 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 we would expect the, the corollary, he will be unfaithful. But surprisingly we read, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. God cannot and will not be anything but faithful to his children, even if they are unfaithful. God will be faithful to his word and to his own, even when they manipulate and fight against his will. And more, his word will prevail. Listen to what this man asked. Believer, are you playing games with God's word? Are you attempting to control how God is working in your life? Are you engaging in an unrighteous means to bring about His righteous end? Are you fighting against His Word? If so, stop it. Give it up. And say with your Savior, Your will be done. And yield to His invincible determination to fulfill His Word. That if we are faithless, He remains faithful because He cannot deny Himself. I read that and about had to get on my knees. The blessings of God in the lives of children. Now, I'm talking to believers this morning. I am expecting that those of you here have a relationship with Jesus. You've trusted Him as your Savior. You know Him. And if we have, God is working something out in our life, something really good. And when God brings pain in our life, that doesn't mean that we're in punishment. Maybe God's trying to teach us. Maybe God's trying to make us, mold us. Maybe He's trying to do something in our life. We don't know. But you know, as I was thinking about this, perhaps this man is correct. When things don't go our way, instead of just jumping in and trying to change them all the time, maybe we should just pause 
and say, not my will, your will be done. Father, thank you this morning for instruction from your word. And I do pray that as you work in our lives, even in painful ways sometimes, that you will teach us the lessons of what we should do and what we shouldn't do in our family. Because in the end, Father, we want to bring glory to your name. And as one man says, even if it's at our own expense. So help us in our life to submit to you, to trust your word, to trust your timing, to trust your process as you work in the life of, life of our husband, our wife, our children, our employees, our co-workers, our boss, our neighbor. Help us to be the people that you want us to be and help us to have enough faith to trust you that in your timing and in your way that you will work things out the way you want them to be worked. And when we do that, we are truly living by faith and trusting in your ways and your provision. So give us the grace and the patience and the humility to be willing to do that this morning and throughout the rest of our life, and we'll give you praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you came this morning, and maybe you came to this church, and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, one of our, one of our desires and delights is to tell you how you can know Him. You see, God created us in His image, but we're all sinners, as you've heard this morning. There's no perfect person. And our sin separates us from God because He's holy. But do you know that God loved sinful man so much that by grace He became man to come to this earth to live a life like we did in perfection and no sin, to die on a cross, to pay the full penalty of the wrath that we deserve. He took every bit of it. The hell we deserve for being liars and cheaters and manipulators and selfish and self-centered. Jesus took all of that on Himself. And He paid the full penalty of God so that by faith in what He did on the cross for our sin, if we will put our faith in what He did, He will come into our heart and life, forgive us of our sin, and give us eternal life. To prove that His sacrifice to God was acceptable, commendable, God raised Him from the dead. And Jesus is now alive and the only man in a full body, resurrected body in heaven today. And the Scriptures teach that He's coming back again. And if you want to be right with God, Jesus said the only way you can do that is come through Him. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father unless He comes through me. If you've never accepted that message as your life and your message, we trust, we pray. We trust you'll do that today. If you have questions about it, Brian is in the back. I'll be up here. Come and see one of us and tell us. I, I'd like to know more about Jesus and eternal life. We want to help you. And that's our prayer for you that you would do that today. So Father, 
If anyone's here or online that doesn't know Christ as Savior, I pray you'll do a work in their heart and life that they'll trust Jesus for eternal life. It's in his name we pray.